Titus chapter 2, I want to read to us verses 1 through 10. This is the word of Almighty God. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, as we study this passage, this look at the family and your standards, may we realize that we don't live up to them. May we rest in Christ, even as you work in us with your spirit to sanctify us for your glory. Now, Lord, open your word to us, we pray, that we might hear you faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You can be seated. The Apostle Paul left his younger friend and faithful ministry helper, Titus, on the island of Crete sometime around AD 62, 63, maybe early 64. And Paul had a job for Titus, a call that Titus would go straighten out what needed to be straightened out on the island and he would set things right in the churches in all those towns. Then Paul wrote Titus a little letter. We have it here in Holy Scripture. It's, it's only 46 verses. This letter is a divine reminder of the mission that Paul sent Titus on. And it's a revelation for you and me to know that what Paul has Titus looking into is vital for all Christians everywhere. What have we seen so far in the book of Titus? You may not remember, I've been gone a couple weeks. Titus was asked to establish elders, groups of godly men who would lead in each church. Elders are to be men of Christian character and doctrinal faithfulness. Elders were needed because there were many people in the churches around Crete who were doing damage by teaching false doctrine for selfish motives. Look at Titus 1, verses 9 to 11. Speaking of the elder, it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. <clears throat> For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting a whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So elders were needed 
to teach and to rebuke because false teachers were turning families upside down on Crete. In contrast, Paul wanted Titus to teach sound doctrine in the church. And the sound doctrine is something that will be lived out by faithful Christians who demonstrate godly character in the church and in their homes. It was a few weeks ago, we looked at the character that we want to see in godly older men and godly older women in verses 1 through 4. Do any of you remember doing that? I'm so glad. When we looked at that character or those qualities, we pointed out that even if you don't fit into the particular category being taught, there was something for you to learn, right? Young men need to grow up into being godly older men. Young women need to grow up into being godly older women. Women need to know the character traits of godly men. Men need to know the character traits of godly women. Godly older men and women are, in the text we studied, called to display dignity and sobriety and self-control. Men are called to grow sound in faith and love and perseverance. Part of being a godly man is that you grow more stable, more able to hold up under pressure, more able to be an example for the people around you of a person who's not wasting his life on what's frivolous. Paul said older women likewise were to display holy character. He cautioned the women on Crete to particularly be careful to avoid the temptation of drunkenness and malicious talking, literally devilish speech. And God calls on those older women to be devoted to teaching and training the younger women in the church. Similarly, by the way, in 2 Timothy, Paul calls on Timothy to find faithful men who will bring up other men. Same picture, right? In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Listen to me. The church, every local church, needs godly older believers to be people of character who do not waste their lives, but who are ready to teach and train and invest in other younger believers around them. The biblical pattern in the church is that older men invest in younger men and older women invest in younger women. So now let's get a look at what godly older believers are supposed to teach. Today we'll find three more categories of Christian character for godly younger women, younger men, and then slaves, first century household servants. Now, before we get started on that, I want to take us on a little side journey, a little tangent. This discussion of men and women in the home is focused strongly on married men and married women. How many of you all are married? How many of you aren't? That's the rest of you. <laughs> what we need to remember is that in the church, in any church, there are going to be folks who are single and there's going to be folks who are married. And being single in the Christian community can be hard. I've known single Christian men and single Christian women who felt like 
they just don't fit in in the church because everybody's a family, everybody's married, everybody's coupled up. And I understand not all young women, not all young men are married. Not everyone's even going to be married. There are people in the church who deeply wish they were married and are not. And it's a painful wound. So, whether it's in this room or watching online or in another church you know, if there's somebody who is unmarried but desperately wishes they were married, I I have a lot of sympathy for that. Now, while it's true that the Bible presents marriage as a normal state for most people as we grow older, the Bible never, ever belittles singleness. In 1 Corinthians, Paul particularly highlights the benefits of living single, especially in a time of hardship and persecution. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35 here for you. It says, I want you to be free from anxieties, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If you are a single person, take advantage of this season of life for the service of God. Singles are freer than married folks to give of their lives, their time, their money for the sake of caring for other believers, sharing the gospel, studying the scriptures, going on missions, focusing solely on the Lord. Married folks, we got to figure out how to serve the Lord with a spouse, maybe kids in the mix. And it is harder. It's not bad. I like it. But it's harder. At the same time, someone who's single who doesn't want to be single, that's painful. We're not going to belittle that in our church at any point. We need in the church for married people to be sensitive to that pain in folks who aren't. We need to be sensitive to that in older singles. We need our families, we need our friendships to be open to including people who are in different stages of life than we are. So don't just open your life and your home to people who are just like you. Be sure that you care for people who are different. So singles find ways to have fellowship with married couples. Married folks don't don't leave singles out of the friendship circles. Now for wisdom's sake, men need to befriend men. Women should be befriending women. We've seen that in the picture of how how to teach and train in Titus. But let's be wise to grow in godly friendships even if we're careful not to bring about temptations and jealousies. But with that in place, don't write off people who are in a different stage of life than you are. The beauty of the church is us caring for one another across almost any social boundary you can think of. Because 
there's not to be dividing lines in the church of single or married, male or female, this skin color, that skin color, this wealth level, that wealth level. We are one new people in Christ. With me? Okay. Tangent over. With all that stuff said, let's turn to what Paul says for older women to teach the younger. So, younger women. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So what are the older ladies to train the younger ladies to do? Younger ladies, what are you supposed to learn to do? What are you supposed to learn to be? Simply put, older ladies are to train younger ladies to live lives that point to God. Lives that would never allow the word of God to be reviled. And in that list, you're going to find seven attributes. Many of them are similar. They're all important. They're a look at the characteristics of godly biblical femininity for wives in the home. I'm going to put the first two together. They have to do with the household. Godly younger women are to learn to love their husbands and love their children. Then the pairing and the ordering of those attributes, we learn an important lesson. It's on purpose that God called ladies to love their husbands first and to love their children. Ladies need to hear this. If you focus all of your attention on the kids and not on loving your husband, your marriage will be difficult. God has called you to your spouse first. God has called you to your spouse primarily, not first and primarily to the kids. Now, raising the kids is something that we're not at all going to neglect. But you've got to realize that the spouse in the marriage comes first. And men, you need to hear that point too. Again, love your spouse before your kids. Remember, when we talked about elders back in chapter 1, the elder was first to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, and it was after that, after we talked about his marriage, that we said he was supposed to be raising his children to be faithful. When you get married, you commit yourself to your wife, men, as your highest human priority. Yes, your walk with God will always supersede your spouse, but that's it. No other human relationship, not even that of being a parent to your children, is of higher priority than your relationship as a husband to your wife. Now, ladies, how do you learn to love your husband? How do you learn to love your children? Sometimes this needs to be taught because not every husband's as lovable as me. And just ask Mitzi, I'm a delight. But uh, I don't know why you laugh at that. Biblical love, biblical love includes feelings, but it's much greater than how you feel. Biblical love is a life-changing commitment to doing another person good, even when doing that good is costly. Biblical love is a life-changing commitment 
to do another person good even when doing that good is costly. How do I get that? Romans 5 verse 8, speaking of genuine love of God, says, but God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While that verse may be telling us something about how Jesus feels, it showed us far more about our Savior's self-sacrificial commitment to do us a good that we could never do on our own. So what does love look like? It looks like you being willing to lay down your life for the good of another person. That's what it looked like for Jesus. That's what it looks like for a husband to love his wife. That's what it looks like for a wife to love her husband or a mom to love her children. So what do you do when you love your family? You do them good. You show that you, that you care. You, you love them in ways that they're going to be able to understand, that they're going to be able to sense that you're committed to their well-being. And let me tell you, that's going to be different for every spouse. That's going to be different even with every child. There are some husbands that will feel loved if you let him watch a ball game. Some would not possibly care about that at all, right? Some husbands will feel loved if you take an interest in what he's reading. Some husbands will feel love if you show him romantic interest. Sometimes loving your husband, though, is not going to include making him feel particularly good at all. Because the way that a wife might do her husband most good might not feel great at the time. You know, have you ever noticed that none of us love reproof? I mean, I can't imagine if I called Ben up and said, Buddy, I need to reprove you that Ben would go, All right! (laughs) You're not looking forward to that. But being rebuked, but being reproved, but being brought to repentance, that's good for your soul. And so that is a loving thing for a wife to do for her husband. Love your kids with the same kind of thoughtfulness that's committed to their good and to their own individual bent and personalities. How many of you who have children have maybe one of the bunch that's a snuggler? Or had one that was a snuggler? But how many of you know that not all of them are? Not all of ours remained snugglers. Ain't nobody snuggling Josiah right now. (laughs) Some kids need you to play a game with them. I still play old school Nintendo Punch-Out just so Owen can be happy about me doing it. You know you can do that without seeing the screen at all. And I bet you I'm better than you at it. So some kids need you to sit down and talk or just look at them and listen to them and hear what they're feeling. As kids grow up, they need you to love them enough to tell them no when they want something that's not good for them. Even if they don't like hearing it, that's love. And let me encourage you, wives and husbands alike, think as you try to show love. Do your best to show love to your family according to how they receive it best. Um, I don't know, how many of you have ever read the, or heard of the Five Love Languages book by Gary Chapman? A few of you heard of that book before? 
I do not endorse that book. I think there are some significant problems, so please don't pick it up and read it. But there was something Gary Chapman got right. He understood that if I'm going to be loving most, I love my wife best when I love her in a way that she receives love better than me doing it the way that's most easy for me. Does that make sense? If you're a gift giver and your spouse is not interested in receiving gifts, loving them best is not giving them a trinket. It is most selfless, it is most giving to learn how your spouse and your children understand and receive love and then you do what you can to love in that way as best you can. And spouses, we are understanding that, you know what, Mitzi would probably love it if I bought her clothes, but uh, I'm not wired for that. I can't see them. So I would pick out some funny stuff. All right, let me put three of the next attributes together. They're not exactly, there's a break in them, but we're going to put three together of the seven. They're character attributes for a younger lady that God wants to emphasize. God wants you to be self-controlled, pure, and kind. There's a fun set, right? Self-control is an attribute we see mentioned for men and for women, older and younger. Keeping your thoughts, keeping your actions, keeping your attitudes in check, that is crucial for any believer of any age. And part of self-control for women is purity. That word focuses on moral purity. It's especially focused on sexual faithfulness inside the marriage. We live in a society that does not value fidelity in relationships. Women are displayed on your TVs, on your streams as only having value if they can use their bodies to turn the heads of men or to try to do things that should be reserved for men. Godly older women need to remind younger women that purity, that being modest, that being faithful to one husband, that's what God wants of you. Your value is found as you obey God, not as you get a look, not as you get attention from a stranger. Adding to the character God wants for ladies is kindness. That word could be generosity, it could be goodness. Simply put, older ladies should work with younger ladies to, be, to learn to be sweet, to learn to be kind, to learn to be giving and good to others. You want to summarize that little character section right there? Younger ladies, are you loving your husbands? If you're married and you're not loving your husband, you're not obeying God. Are you loving your children? Are you self-controlled in your behavior, in your talk? Are you pure? Are you modest in how you dress and how you carry yourself? Is your life marked by kindness? Would most people describe you as a kind, generous, caring person? Would most people who see what you write on the internet say, that lady's kind? Older ladies Are you displaying those attributes too and helping younger ladies to have them? Because these are lives that point to God and God says older ladies need to train younger ladies in these areas. Now the last two I'm going to put together here, they're the ones that are most controversial for our society, just like in Crete. The culture of today does not lend itself to doing what God has called us to do or to be. 
It is not a modern invention that people would rebel against God's plan for the family. So Paul has to call the ladies to learn to be working at home and submissive to their own husbands. The, work, the point there behind working at home is that God wants to communicate to younger ladies that their primary responsibility is for the care of the household. Husbands, in general terms, are supposed to be the ones who work outside the home and provide for the needs of the family. Now, there are certainly times and circumstances that will force a family not to function as God's designed it here. But those really shouldn't be what we want first and foremost for ourselves and our families. We live best, we find the most joy, we give God the most glory when we design our families as God has planned. Now, working at home means that ladies take on a primary, not the only, but a primary responsibility for making home a place of peace and comfort and godly living. God has uniquely gifted and designed ladies to play that role in the family. I'm not saying a lady can never be employed outside the home. Don't hear that from me. In Proverbs 31, the woman of noble character did, in fact, work outside the home. But the Proverbs 31 woman worked outside the home as a secondary responsibility. Her primary job is to care for the husband and the children. She worked in her spare time to help the family. She didn't go out and work to build a career or find self-fulfillment or to climb a corporate ladder. She wasn't out there to try to prove something. Godly ladies, take primary responsibility for the care of your home. Just as you know that it's God's plan for your husband, if he's a godly husband, to take responsibility for spiritual leadership in the home, take responsibility for making the home your family's place, safe, loving place. And if, if there's a season of your life where your family's turned inside out there, we all understand it, but don't let go of that role, making the house, making the home, caring for the family. It's you needed too much there. The final attribute here was submissive to your own husband. Throughout the scripture, we've seen several different kinds of relationships that involve authority and submission. See something as sharp as masters and their slaves. You've seen something as tender as parents and children. You've seen something as clear as governors and the governed. You've seen something as divine as God and his children, Christ and the church. From the very beginning, part of the love relationship in the Bible between God and God's people is involved authority and submission. To submit to another's authority is not to break the law of God for them. To submit to another's authority is not to open yourself up for abuse. To submit to authority is not to say that you're worth less than the one whose authority that you're under. No, to submit to authority in the marriage relationship especially is to willingly, joyfully play the role God has given you to play. To submit is to trust that God knew what he was doing 
when he established the family the way he set it up. To submit, as strange as it is in our culture, is to demonstrate that God's ways are better than the ways of a lost world. Now, ladies, we don't have time to open all this up and unpack all this and, and unpack it for your household because every one of us has different things, different issues we've got to wrestle with, different shapes, different bents, all the rest. I understand that. If you want to think about it further, I could definitely point you to some good books. I will remind you that we have sermons on this topic in our Ephesians 5 or 1 Peter 3 in those series. Ladies, your husband is to be a servant leader just like Jesus, you are to be a suitable helper to him, an eager, loving, thoughtful follower. You are not to be without an opinion. You are not to be a slave. You are not to be abused. You are not to break God's laws. You are to love your husband and trust that God will sovereignly lead you through this man he's given you. I want you to note one more thing here. You are called to submit to your own husband. That is the Greek word idios. Submit to your idios husband. It's close, isn't it? Really close. By the way, just so you know, the word idiot literally means one who only trusts in his own opinions. Your own Greek idios. In this instance, the point is wives are not called women all women are not called to submit to all men. That is a misnomer. But a woman, a wife, is called to be under the godly, loving servant leadership of her own husband. Older ladies, have you yielded to the word of God here? Do you believe that God knew what he was doing when he called for the older women to teach the younger women to work at home and submit to their own husbands? Older ladies, can you help the, a modern-minded generation to see the value of God's standard here? And younger ladies, are you willing, even if it feels difficult, even if it feels foreign to you, to follow the Word of God? Are you willing to look into what it means to work at home and be submissive to your own husband? Are you willing to take a look at the topic and not merely to find some modern interpretation that will turn the meaning of Scripture on its head? Husbands, let me talk to you for a second, by the way. Don't you dare demand submission from a wife if you're not willing to do your part to lead and love her like Jesus. Loving her, men, means you sacrifice your very life for her good. Jesus wasn't lazy. Jesus didn't sit on the couch and watch TV while the disciples did all the work. Jesus served his disciples, even humbling himself to wash their feet in John 13. Husbands, love God with all your heart. Love your wife with all your heart. Love your kids. And if you do those things well, your wife will find it significantly easier to follow you. Let's talk about younger men. Younger men. Verse 6 through 8. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. 
And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Here we have the word likewise. We're, we're switching categories again. Ladies, back to the gentlemen. We're assuming that the young men need to be putting into practice many of the same principles that have just been taught to older men, even to the older ladies. And right away here, the call for young men is self-control. God wants self-control to be a present attribute in every single one of his people. But I think we all know that self-control can be something especially needful in young men. See, the world of the Cretans was a world full of temptations to all sorts of immorality. There was sexual immorality in Crete. There was drunkenness in Crete. Godly self-control is the way that believers would combat that. And young men were especially needy of having that kind of self-control. Y'all, you know, times really haven't changed that much. Our culture looks a lot like Crete, and we need to emphasize self-control in every area of life. And then Paul calls on Titus to set the example for younger men. Titus was probably still younger than the oldest men in the church. Titus was to model good works. It's not enough for us to just get out there and preach that y'all ought to love other people. We're supposed to model loving other people. God then takes aim particularly at our mouths. In your words, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Don't speak falsehoods to or about other people. Take care to be sure that what comes out of your mouth does not give the world a right reason to despise you as a hypocrite. Again, young or old, especially young folks, take a look at these things. How is your self-control? How is your speech? Do you use your mouth in ways that shine an ugly dark light on God and God's people? Could your speech be rightly condemned by the world? Are you mean in how you talk? Are you mean in how you write? Young men, do your lives point people to God? Last category, we got to get going here. Slaves is the last category. Verses 9 to 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now we've talked about slaves several times over the years in our studies of Scripture. Colossians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, all of them had discussions. Philemon. We've already explained multiple times how first century slavery was not the same as slavery in the Old Testament, and it certainly was not the same as slavery in America during the 16th and 17th centuries. So don't let your mind get bogged down with the racist, evil slavery of the Americas. It's not what we're talking about here. If you want to know why, I can help you and point you back to those other sermons. But regardless of rightness or the wrongness that was inherent in the system, slavery in the first century existed. And this passage says that there were some Christians who were slaves in the first century. And they needed to know how to live with godly character in that household slave role. 
Slaves were to be submissive in everything. It's not a call for slaves to break the law of God. They were not supposed to violate scripture for the commands of their master. But in all situations where it was moral to obey the commands of the masters, slaves were to obey. Then we get a list of four things from slaves. There were two positives, two negatives. Positives, show all good faith. It's pretty good. Uh, be well-pleasing, show all good faith. Negatively, don't be argumentative, don't be pilfering. So, you're supposed to be respectful, you're supposed to be obedient, you're supposed to not talk back to the boss. Never, ever steal from the boss. And we can make an application to our daily lives because most of y'all have jobs. You're supposed to try to please your employer. You're supposed to be respectful to the boss. Don't talk back. Don't complain all the time. Don't let yourself get the reputation for being the complainer. That can't honor Christ. Be trustworthy. Don't take advantage of your job in ways that are not clearly given you by the boss. How you work can either point your boss toward God or away from God. Work to point people to God. Again, doesn't mean you never complain. Does, or you, never, you never say, hey, this isn't right. We need to address it. You address problems, yes. But you don't show a lack of character. Now, y'all still awake out here? I'm so glad. Anthony asked me a moment ago, earlier this afternoon, how long can you go before you have to take a nap? And I said, I don't know. I think we're about to see. Y'all, looking back at what I've just taught you through here, don't you think you could have learned most of those things through common sense, honestly? It's better to be dignified than foolish. Is that really that complicated? It's better to be trustworthy than a thief. It's better to have self-control than to be out of control. This is not surprising. And if you're not careful, lists of commands like we saw here in verses 1 to 10 can make your life full of a very legalistic, very fleshly, very works-oriented religion. Some of you might feel beat up right now. And far, far too many churches are moralistic with none of the Spirit of God in the things that they do. You can look over the things in verses 1 to 10 and you could, you could find places where you need to improve. But how do you improve in a way that's more than moralism? How do you improve in such a way that makes this more than a worldly self-improvement project? Think about this. What motivates you to make your life have these attributes. I'm going to put three ends of verses up here for you. End of verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We are to do the things that God has commanded, not to make ourselves righteous before God, 
But in order to keep the name of God and the word of God and the gospel of Christ from being defamed. Positively, we do these things because we want to make our lives point clearly and convincingly toward the glory of our God. Christians, listen closely as we wrap up. God doesn't want you to work on what you saw in this list out of moralistic duty. Now, if that's all you got in your heart, fine. Obey rather than disobey, even if it's out of duty. But God wants something better for you. God wants you to do these things to show off his glory. He wants you to learn to love giving him glory. God designed you so that when you obey God, it gives God glory. And you giving God glory gives you internal joy. So fight for your own joy by working on the things that we studied for the glory of God. Now, if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to come to Jesus. You see, lists like the one that we just studied here, they ought to convince you, even if you don't agree with everything on the list, it convinces you that you and I do not measure up to God's standard of perfection. None of us measures up to this standard. But God has done the work to save his children, so come and trust in Jesus and what you're going to find is that he's done everything you need that you might be forgiven and that you could spend forever in the presence and glory of God. Let's pray together, friends. <clears throat> Lord, this is hard stuff for many because it goes against our culture, it goes against our nature, <clears throat> it goes against so much that we take for granted. But God, here's the point. You made us. You designed us for your glory. You know what's best. And we are sinners who, if we're left to ourselves, will never get it right because we always choose to fight against you unless you move in us by your Spirit. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for, for forgiveness. Thank you for a new life where we can obey you. I pray in our lives and in our families that you will start building us to glorify you most. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.